So what do you prefer in your life? Routine or variety? Do you approach things in a certain way, knowing that you can do it well? Or do you let life come to you and react accordingly? I used to take pride in my lack of routine. I found predictability to be confining, not calming, and boring versus exploring. But as I aged, I realized I might have had it wrong. We're living these times marked by rapid change, unpredictability, and uncertainty, all of which contribute to anxiety and the state of our mental health. Experts will tell you that a routine provides us with a much-needed oasis from this wild world we live in. What about your imagination? Many have created work that spans generations, if not decades and centuries. Credit their daily practices is essential for putting words or notes on paper or challenging the status quo through invention. I can't think of an athlete who's reached world-class stature without a training or performance routine. My yoga teacher, her name's Lynn McGowan, and I credit her for slowing down my cells aging through routines and improved my flexibility and strength. Still, I know her most significant dissatisfaction to me as a student is my ability to begin my day in a way that quietens my mind, where I want caffeine that fires my grind. I also want to state the obvious and say that not all routines are productive or healthy. Some can be even dangerous if your routine is to run from life or worse, use substances to fuel it. But my guest today has achieved success beyond most of our imaginations. His name is Jim Estel. My goal today is to inspire you to start one small success habit. Something you do that's small, doesn't impact your day, doesn't take much time, but in the long run makes a difference. People tend to overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in a decade. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. We're going to learn about how Jim dreams and does and creates and builds. We also know why and how this creative thinker and high achiever has found variety and opportunity through his routines. Jim, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Well, thanks for having me. So, Jim, you're a self-made, multi-billionaire tech CEO. What I love is you credit your success to an accumulation of many small routines that you call success habits. How did that come about? Because most entrepreneurs, they don't really talk about their routines. It's almost like they're swashbucklers that just fly by the seat of their pants. You, you have a different approach. Tell me why. Well, um, I've read a lot about psychology and willpower, and willpower is limited. And the way to get over willpower being limited is to create a habit. If something's a habit, it takes no willpower to do. And we're... Aristotle said we're the habit of what we repeatedly do. If we do a little bit every day, it becomes something big over time. So I'm just a huge, huge believer in success habits. So tell me a day in your life. Like give me a sense of some of these sort of you call routines or success habits because they certainly have paved this way where you are not only a dreamer, you are a doer. Well, I'm a time management guy. So uh, most of these habits are really short. So I believe that gratitude is part of the um, secret to happiness. And so I have a gratitude journal and I write three things I'm grateful for every day. That's usually the first thing I do when I get up. I meditate for 10 minutes, not 11 minutes, 10 minutes, almost nothing. I uh, work out, not the same thing every day. Um, The softest would be a walk. The uh, hardest would be, you know, lifting heavier weights and doing ab exercises and stuff that I don't enjoy as much. And it sounds like I'm very routinized, but my day is actually 
completely open. I mean, I do have appointments every you know hour, every two hours. I'm, I work to a schedule. That's why I'm here on time. But at the end of the day, no two days are the same because I'm working on many different projects at many different stages at many different times. So it's not that my day is identical every day. So talk to me about this tension between, you know, I want to start a day a certain way and I want to create some habits that lead to success, but also the adrenaline excitement when you've got many projects going and are all different stages and you can't really predict when a ball is going to fall or a ball is going to fly out of your hand. So how do you work those two in to make sure that there's still enough yin and yang in your world? So one trick, I deliberately leave some gaps in my schedule because I know something's going to happen that I don't expect. And that, and I need those gaps. So if you look at my day, you're going to say, Jim, you only, uh, you only work four hours a day because you only uh, scheduled four hours a day. Yes, you're right. I did only schedule four hours or sometimes it's five hours. It's rarely six hours. As a matter of fact, if I, if I have a six or seven hour day scheduled, I complain to my assistant that I'm overscheduled because I know during the day, some stuff will come up that needs my attention. It takes a certain amount of time also for me to do the maintenance tasks, which would be basically email and touching base with staff and, you know, the routine stuff that we all have on our list that we all need to do. So I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. And I always go, there's times when the salmon are running. Everything you touch turns to like an opportunity. And I find in those times, I lose sight of work-life balance. I sometimes push aside the things that should really matter most to me, including my family, including my health, including my uh, ability to just find my own time. What advice can you give to people? Because you're being in that place far more often than most, connect those two. I want to go back to that sort of yin and yang or this, this sense of the adrenaline of making things happen, but at the same time needing to quieten so that ultimately long-term things will happen. I have never met a highly successful person that is completely balanced and balance is somewhat overrated. So people walk around in life feeling guilt over balance. Second thing, I am a health guy. And I believe that health gives me the energy, even the mental energy and the power to get things done. So I don't actually scrimp on uh, working out and eating right. And I'm not perfect on my eating and I'm not perfect on my working out, but um, I don't cut into those times. Another trick I did um, is I put my relationships or family on my goal list. I learned to do that after I... Uh, basically lost my first marriage because it wasn't on my goal list. Treat it just like I do my executive team, just like I do my management team. They're on my list. So I could say, oh, well, matter of fact, I'd free up a lot of time. If I didn't talk to any of my executive, any of my management for two or three or four weeks, it would work fine. Eight weeks from now or three months from now, it wouldn't work fine when they don't feel in the know and they don't feel appreciated and they don't uh, head in the right direction. And how about your culture? Is this something that you try to impress upon others, this ability to put your health first, you know, goal setting, don't overschedule? Is this something you're trying to encourage with your, your C-suite and your management team? Or is this something that works for you and let others do what works for them? Um, I do lead by example and I have some tricks and I encourage those tricks. One of them is the power of while. What can you do while you're doing something else? So I, pre-pandemic, was known for my walking meetings. And I do two or three walking meetings every single day. 
It's not a big deal, but it means that I'm outside in the fresh air with someone. I mostly do it with people who work for me, but I often do it with suppliers or friends. Um, I have walking meetings. So I get a little bit of exercise. I mean, it's not aggressive exercise while I'm doing something else. I get a little bit of outside time. One of my philosophies is everyone should spend 20 minutes a day outside. And how do you find people that are maybe out of their comfort zone? They're used to meeting you in your office or there's the surroundings that they feel, you know, they've got a PowerPoint, they've got slides, and you're inviting them outside to walk. How does the dynamics change? Because I think that's a great piece of advice for people is this, this sense of power while and one of the wilds can be walking. Walking is a very leveling thing. If we're in an office, we're across a desk, there's, there is much more of a power, much more adversary. If we're walking the same direction outside, it's hard to uh, be confrontational. So it, we're more collaborative. I have done walking meetings with people five years ago and not seen someone for five years. And then when I see them, they say, I always remember that walking meeting. Would they remember the meeting if it was in my conference room or in my office? My office is the same as anybody else's office. My conference room is the same as anyone else's conference room. Of course, I ask people, is it okay if we go for a walking meeting? But I have rarely had anyone push back on it. And uh, the other trick I do is I walk at the pace of the person I'm walking with. Um, So I don't try to uh, make a slow walker fast. Um, It's... uh, and I can keep up with most people. We don't run, we, we just walk. One success habit I have is I never shower unless I break a sweat first. And I can break a sweat without running five miles. I can break a sweat by doing a few push-ups or a few sit-ups. Very simple, less than two minutes. Another success habit, my office is on the fifth floor and I always take the stairs. It's actually faster than the elevator in many cases. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Jim Estel. Jim's approach to life is marked by routines, which he calls success habits. And through those success habits, he's achieved many achievements. So, Jim, I'm fascinated with upbringing. I've learned time and time again by interviewing people on the show how important parenting and mentoring are, not only to a young child, but the child that becomes that adult. So, curious, where did you grow up? I grew up in Woodstock, Ontario. So at the time I was growing up there, the population was about 25,000. And it's uh, about an hour west of where I am now in Guelph. So an article I read on you sort of positioned, here's your dad, very much security, company man for life. And you positioned yourself as a little bit of a rebel. So how did you two come to terms with that? When I set out, on um, this is after university, and I started my first business, my father said, well, it's okay. Um, when it doesn't work out, you've got an engineering degree. You can always go get a job. And two or three years after I was out, I went home for Christmas, and my mom said to me, Jim, do you have a job yet? And so there was this thought that if you are working for yourself, you don't have a job. But as uh, you know, when I was young, somewhat rebellious, and it was a different era. In the era my father worked in, you you worked for the same company for 30 years or 40 years and got the gold watch. That was just the way it worked. Now, it turned out in the end, he actually got downsized when he was in his 50s and he came to work for me. So in the end, he became the biggest advocate of being your own 
business person and not not working for someone else. So take us back to that time you you haven't got the job, even though you're working for yourself. He's the company person, but what was the best lesson he gave you? What's that lesson that, you know, you say, I, I, like you said earlier, I, I never forgot that walking meeting I had with you. What's that lesson you'll never forget that your dad gave you? Well, he, he gave me two things. One is he had very high work ethic and high expectation. And I learned work ethic, I would say, from him. It was just very normal to work very hard uh, and very diligently at what I did. So that would have been probably the biggest learning, but the biggest inspiration in a negative way was that comment, when it fails, you can get a job. Because I was darned if I was ever going to fail. So even when times in the first couple of years in business, you know, you're you're not making any money. You're you're living on craft dinner. You're you're barely making ends meet, and you, and, and sometimes you want to throw in the towel. I couldn't throw in the towel because I couldn't go to my dad and said, "Yeah, you're you're right." So I I was destined to prove that he was wrong. You must have been a good participant at the uh, Sunday meal when you're coming in and saying, "Tonight I don't have to eat craft dinner." How about your mom? What what gift did she give you? She gave me, I call it the gift of politeness. And I have used that in business. As a matter of fact, one secret to business is return calls, be polite, do what you say you're going to do. Really, really, really simple stuff. You can start any business and that alone can be a competitive advantage. That was my competitive advantage when I started my painting business when I was 13. The local painters that painted houses in Woodstock were, they were almost pigs. They'd walk into your house with their work shoes on. I took my shoes off. They throw their cigarette butts in your hedge. They uh, didn't show up when they said they're going to be there at nine. They didn't show up till 10 or if at all. And it was the simple, simple uh, showing up, being polite and uh, communicating and letting people know. Nobody actually is very upset when you say, I thought the job was going to take a week, but it looks like it's going to take eight days here. So uh, if you communicate, people aren't aren't upset. But you're 13 years old. I mean, so yes, you take your shoes off and you're hopefully not a smoker. You're not using their hedge as an ashtray, but you have to still make those people believe that you're going to get the job done. Where most 13 year olds are looking out the window or playing ball hockey in the street, or they're not going in there and taking care of that person's most precious asset. How did you convince people at that age, including, I don't understand, the brothers and friends that you employed, that you were a tycoon capable of turning a nasty wall into a beautiful uh, oyster white? It started because my dad wanted me to paint a fence. And so I painted a fence and the neighbor saw me painting the fence. Oh, you can paint. Can you do this? And so a lot of it was references and people were happy to give me references. And a lot of it was referral. And uh, the other part of it was I wasn't smart enough to know that I couldn't do things. I, of course, I couldn't drive, but I'd drive around the, the town looking for houses that need a painting. I had a pre-done, uh, back then it was like a mimeograph, it wasn't even photocopied sheet that I said, uh, you know, I can paint your house and it's going to cost you $600, it's going to take eight days or whatever. And I filled it all in and called Jim's Painting, which of course at that time, no cell phone, it's my, it's my home number. Somehow I also got used to the rejection. So I would drop off uh, 10 of them and one of them would return my call. And then you'd show up and they say, gee, you're a 13-year-old kid. And I'd say, yeah, but call Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Jones and Mr. Reed and, and see if they're happy. And then I would call again. You see, a lot of the tradespeople I was competing with, 
wouldn't even return calls. They wouldn't call again, and they wouldn't call the third time or the fourth time, but I was too naive to know I couldn't do it. And, and I'm a little bit of a marketer at heart. So when I didn't make the sale, then I'd have a sale, give a discount for uh, doing this. And you try to figure out what is it that the customer wants and work with what they want. So speaking of what they want, what I love is your last year of university, you create EMJ Data is a technology distribution company from the trunk of your car. You write a book called Zero to Two Billion, uh, the marketing and branding story behind the growth. So talk to us about how this all came about. Because from what I understand, it was almost like you painted the fence and the neighborhood saw it. This all came about because you needed a, a board or something for your computer. The computer distribution business started because I was an engineer, systems design engineer, and I wanted to design circuit boards. Back then, computers were very expensive. I got a better deal if I bought two. So I bought two and I sold one. Then someone else wanted one, so I bought two more. And then someone wanted a printer. Then someone wanted a monitor. Someone wanted more memory. Someone wanted a disk drive. So pretty soon I'm buying and selling computer hardware, software, and peripherals. That was just at the entrance of the personal computer. So I was lucky. I was right at the right place at the right time. In the computer industry in that day, people actually wanted to talk to the recent university grad or to want to talk to the 20 year old. They didn't want to talk to the 40 year old because they'd be talking about IBM mainframes and expensive, uh, huge installations. I was doing personal computers. Now, about three or four years into that business, I was still doing some circuit board design. I was distributing products and I was in a uh, maybe a 2000 square foot facility and I ran out of space and I had half a dozen or 10 engineers. And so I took the engineers and I split them into another company called ConnectTech. And that company stayed in business and is still in business today. It grew. I sold half of it to my partners, the engineers that did that. They're my favorite partners. Um, we recently sold that. They sold that. They did all the work, built that company. They sold it to Heiko. That's the silent part because they never became a huge company. They have maybe 200 employees today where my company, I was fortunate enough to grow it to a couple billion in sales. And by the way, that doesn't mean I'm a billionaire. I grew the business to the billion status. Not, I didn't sell it for billions. So I'm interested, Jim Yates and Sheldon Pollock were in, you must have run into them in your day in the computer business. Of course, of course. I used to do Jim Yates's works all the time when I was in the communication front. I would do his big sales conferences and I helped Sheldon create the name Onyx. So it's an interesting field. As you said, it had its time when it was computers were expensive and you would actually put different boards and such in it. So uh, I, I'm curious about, you sell this business and how old were you when you claimed you were going to retire and you went off to New York? I was about 50, I would say. I sold my business. I ran the business that bought mine for five years. And then I retired and I moved to New York for five years. Um, and I, I was on some boards and doing some angel investing. And then my dad got sick. So I moved back from um, New York to Guelph. I sat on the board of this company, Danby Appliances. The CEO resigned. And I said, well, I can go in and run it because it happens to be a Guelph-based company. Ironically, if it was a Toronto-based company, I wouldn't be running this today because I would have not said I wanted the drive to Toronto. I started running it for a while, and then I realized that's really what I want to do. I don't want to be just an advisor, board member, angel investor. You don't get much leverage on these startups. So I was doing these startups, and you know, you increase sales by 20%, and that's another $100,000. It doesn't give you the same juices now, if I save 1% of my expenses, that's like uh, $4 million. It's real It's real money. I guess the other thing I get, we're not a big company, but we're mid-size enough that I don't have to do anything. So everybody else does all the work. 
Coming up, Jim Estel turns his brilliant entrepreneurial mind on how to help Syrian refugees. What he does is truly an order of Canada. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Small business owners are the heart of our economy, and it's our collective interest to keep them beating strong. Small Business Matters to RBC, and a big shout out for their Small Business Navigator portal that points the way to practical resources, money-saving offers, and financial advice. Find out more at rbc.com slash navigator. So what I would do when I was doing a million in sales, I talked to people who were doing two million in sales and I'd take their ideas and I'd incorporate them into our business. Then I'd talk to people doing five million and then 10 million and then 20 million and 50 million and 100 million. Always asking, what are the things that I can learn from those people? What changes do I need to make in myself? What changes do we need to make in our company to grow? You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Jim Estel is a serial entrepreneur. He trades the business he fell into by accident in university into a journey that turns him into a billionaire. So tell me about what it's like. You go in and you buy Danby because they want decide they want to sell it. And you say, I want to, I buy it. You're now an owner of a fairly large company, but your previous companies, you created the culture. You built it from day one. As you said, my favorite partners, my engineers. Here you're inheriting a culture. What's the difference for someone like you when you are putting your hand on a ship and a rudder of a ship that already exists? You, you have correctly identified the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is changing culture and changing culture is it is a big ship and it's a long time to change. I believe the bigger a company grows, the more the leader's job is to coach on culture and let everyone else make decisions. So if I were the one to make all the decisions, I would be the funnel point. I would be the break point in the company and we would get nothing done. We would have no leverage. So if I come in and the classroom's been painted and it's an ugly color, I don't say anything because I'm not an interior decorator. I didn't have to paint it. I didn't have to choose the paint. As soon as I start making the decisions, then next thing you know, you're pulling away people's um, authority. At the same time, if the bill comes in and it's $10,000, it's like, oh, did we get three quotes on that? Did it really need to be painted? And uh, that becomes a culture thing. So coaching on uh, on culture. And I use leverage when I'm running a mid-sized company. So largely, you get things done with and through people because that's the only way to influence. So I, I have three meetings a week with my executive team. Like that's, it's just an example of how I keep in touch with them. And, and we have a, a once a week management team meeting. I'm hosting a talent conference for the Economic Council of Canada coming up. And we're talking about this new world we're dealing with, you know, the great resignation, the hybrid work model, uh, diversity and inclusion, purpose over profit. I mean, some major forces have changed that are either tailwinds or headwinds facing capitals. And talk to me about how you're coming to terms with that, because I have to believe it impacts your business as well. See, I've been lucky in life, and a lot of things that I've done have unintended consequence. I've always donated a portion of my uh, profit and net worth, and that has made my company come around behind me because you're familiar with the refugee project. I sponsored uh, hundreds of refugees to come to um, Guelph. And so my employees are excited by sponsoring and helping people, maybe even more so than making another 10,000 freezers. So what you've done is I've connected making freezers with doing good. To some extent, they also see um, 
how I live and how I choose to live. And they're not trying to earn me a jet because I don't fly. I don't, I don't need a jet. Matter of fact, one of my life philosophies is anyone who works for me, who does the same amount of work as I do, the same period of time, they can live exactly the same way as I do. In the same house, drive the same cars, they can have the same lifestyle. So I do not like the trend, particularly in the United States, where the CEOs are paid millions and the uh, people who work for them are paid minimum wage or uh, subsistence. So I think what I'm hearing then is this sense of a culture that has a higher purpose than just profit, that where a CEO, you know, you work and live by example, is a counter to what I'm out there, which I think is just a lot of people that are chasing strands and never really weaving it together and knitting it together back into a company. I, I mean, I believe if a higher purpose for your company is how you get people to uh, give their best and be fully engaged. That's just it. When, when one th the, I did very few things when I came into Danby. One thing I did is I uh, used the tagline, do the right thing. So the front of the building says, Danby, do the right thing. Do the right things on the business cards. That is actually a good way to run a company. So how do you treat your customers? Well, you do the right thing. How do you treat your coworkers? Do the right thing. How do you treat your suppliers? Do the right thing. But it's also the battle cry, what do you do in the community? How do you treat the rest of the world? Do we dump toxins in the river? No, it's do the right thing. And it, it actually, because we couldn't have a manual that, that covers all eventualities in uh, in business. James, he have a good, good system with the work. He, he teach you how to fish, not give you fish every day. He helped me because he told me, you are a businessman before, don't worry here. I'm gonna support you. He give you an ID, give you a device. He's very good, guys. So I want to return, you just sort of, I don't mean it offhanded, but you talked about the refugee program, which started with 50 refugees and now from understand you're well over 500 people that you've, you and your company and your people together have brought in. How did that become such an important part of your life? And it sounds like your company's life. Was it where you decided I can do good? And I think the point you made is sometimes I think my employees are more excited about the refugees than another 10,000 fridges. So t just take us back to the beginning of that and where it's evolved. There was a humanitarian crisis around 2015. It was all over the news. And we saw Ali Kurdi washed up on the beach, the, I don't know, 10-year-old boy or whatever it was. And it was just heartbreaking. I have a charity budget, which I spend every year. And I looked at, okay, my charity budget, how many people can I sponsor? Canada has a private refugee sponsorship program. The unintended consequence of that, I said I could sponsor 50 families, which is about 250 people, 300 people. And the unintended consequence of that, I became the poster boy of refugee. And I had no idea I was going to be poster boy of refugee. The reason was I had to build the systems and process around bringing people in successfully. So every family we bring in has four or five mentor families and they have checklists of set up a bank account, register the kids in school, pick them up from the airport, or arrange the arrival meal, find the apartment, find the house, furnish the house, have the, the cutlery and all that kind of stuff. So we built in in this system. And then we got unintended consequence, a lot of press around it. And then I became the poster child. Now I guess I've become a Mr. Refugee Advocate. And, I, and I've even talked and talked to, uh, you know, Minister of Immigration and um, government about my views on policy. And you talk about great resignation. In Canada, there is almost an unlimited number of uh, particularly unskilled jobs that need filling. 
we have a lot of people in the world who would be thrilled to fill those unskilled jobs. I also look at success with refugees as people working, speaking English, some degree of integration and giving back. So those are the four pillars. And we tell every refugee that's the four pillars. So success for us is people working. If you're capable of working, it's one of my beliefs. If you're capable of working, you should work. And uh, we have very, very high success rate, over 90%, over 95% actually on uh, the refugees we brought in. If you had to right now draw a line in the sand and look at your life or go back and, you know, as your parents saying, have you got a job yet? What would you be the most proud of? Would it be the refugee program or would it be building two companies? Or I mean, it's hard to pick one over the other, but I'm just, it sounds like just looking at you right now. And the sad thing about a podcast is they don't see it, is that you just, you have so much pride radiating as you talk about it. So I definitely am proud of the refugee program, but it's, it's like picking your favorite child. There's lots of things. Like one thing that hasn't even been announced yet is we're opening, um, a Guelph Furniture Bank. It's a food bank for those people who need furniture. Why are we doing that? We already have a warehouse to provide for refugees. It's very easy to open it up and we're only doing it by referral. So get referred by Children's Aid or Women in Crisis or Salvation Army. We have furniture and housewares to set up anyone that needs to in an apartment or townhouse or house. It saves landfill. We get estates donated. We've got the warehouse space. We've got the volunteers running the warehouse. I'm proud of that too. So you were speaking at the University of Guelph and you used this line that I just love. People tend to overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in a decade. So I can say that again for the listeners. So people tend to overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in a decade. Tell me that why that quote is so powerful to you that you would share it with students that are about to grab a rung on the ladder and make their way into the world. Well, I have a to-do list of stuff I want to get done today, and I usually don't get through that list. And that's because I overestimate what I can do. I'm going to finish this podcast. I'm going to make eight more calls. Oh, I lost my energy because I have other stuff getting my way. But if I keep my eyes on the horizon that's a decade, for instance, this furniture bank, it will be open because and it's it's a long-term thing it's going to get open on saturday no probably not but is it going to get open in the next couple of months and so in a decade you can accomplish a lot and usually a lot more than you think you're listening to chatter that matters with tony chapman presented by rbc my guest today is Jim Estel. Jim's approach to life is marked by routines, which he calls success habits. And through those success habits, he's achieved many achievements. Small business is the heart of the Canadian economy. It's in our collective interest to keep these heroes beating strong. What's your advice to small business owners as they're navigating the complexities of the marketplace, the changes in the marketplace, the fact that a lot of the, the new tenets of capitalism require you know millions of dollars for data collection and every, all those things that are sort of favoring the big over the little. What's your advice to small business owners that they, there's still a slingshot they can use to, uh, to fight the Goliaths out there? So one of my strategies has always been to go to a niche. I, I, actually, Danby is a perfect example. We have competitors, LG, Samsung, Whirlpool, these are multi-billion dollar companies. We specialize on bar fridges. We sell more bar fridges than they do. We get really good at doing bar fridges. 
we don't actually sell a huge 50-inch side-by-side fridge. We sell, we, and we get very good at doing a niche, small fridges. And the bigger you get, the bigger niche you can go into. So go into bigger and bigger niches. And we have innovation around our little niche. Like we have a, a bar fridge that you can put a beer tap on. It's not a kegerator. It's a beer. It's a, it's a fridge. Well, everyone needs a fridge. Well, gee, it'd be nice to have a kegerator for the two parties that you do a year, but you don't want to have a kegerator for the whole time. Little innovations like that were able to win. So that's my first advice to any small business. Also, the way you phrase the question, it's as if small business has a disadvantage. Small business has a huge advantage. And and I'm embarrassed to say we at Danby, we're even a little bit of a mid-sized business, which means we're slow. As a matter of fact, if you end this conference call and say, "Uh, Jim, I've got a great idea for you. Uh, Here's an appliance and you can sell a quarter million dollars a year. I had to say, Tony, I I can't do an appliance to sell a quarter million dollars or even half million a year. If you do a million a year, maybe, but even then I'd probably not big enough. So there's always things that small businesses can do that bigger businesses can't. Smaller businesses have lower costs to do things than bigger businesses. That's why government sometimes has an issue. Government is the biggest of the big. Go for a niche. Small has a huge advantage. Anything else? I'm a big believer in failure. I always say fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. Having a failure does not make you a failure. And that's partly comes from propensity for action. Big companies will do market studies. Small companies should do market experimentation. So try doing a product and see if it sells. And try doing four products at once and say, this is the one that's working. Drop the three that aren't working and focus on the one that does. And everyone's going to think you're a genius. Like when, when I did BlackBerry, I invested in 150 tech businesses. What's everyone think? Oh, Jim, you did BlackBerry. You're genius. Uh, yeah, I, I, that and the other 149 companies I did at the same time. So it's fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. I had some other business successes in that, but they weren't on the scale of uh, BlackBerry. When I was doing my computer distribution company, one of the companies we did at the time they were going bankrupt was Apple. Everyone says, Jim, you're a genius. You did Apple. Yes, we did Apple and we did Seattle Computer and we did Techmar. We did Quadram. We did a bunch of companies you've never heard of. And that's because those companies aren't around anymore. But yes, we did Apple. So yes, if you want to know me for doing Apple, then you know me for doing Apple. It's fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. Jim, I always end my chats by the three things I've learned and I've been scribbling. This is going to be a tough one, but I'm going to go with the first one, which is you might have just thrown out, but I love your mother's advice about being polite and how that manifested into the competitive advantage you can have by just answering the phone call, doing the right thing to people. This concept of being polite and integrity and compassion and empathy, how that little lesson that she gave you uh, has carried you all the way through to this slogan that's on your door. The second one, I was debating coaching on culture and, and balances overrated and I got to choose balance is overrated because of your honesty. I think it is an incredible time in anybody's life where they find that moment when they're in a zone and things are happening. That could be you're an amateur golfer. That could be you're an amateur chef. That could be you're creating a business. Sometimes things are going to get sacrificed because it's just a wonderful time to have the sales up and to do it. The last one though is the power of wow. 
such fresh insight that while you're doing, you can be doing something else. And I wish we had done this interview with me walking with you. Sound would have been horrible, but it would be an interview I would never forget. So the power of while and just the opportunity to open your mind and to multitask with a purpose, I think is just fantastic. I've heard you speak, obviously been a fan for many, many years, but uh, Jim Eslow, you've been just wonderful on Chat of the Matters. Well, thanks for having me, Tony. Joining me now is Karen Svensson, who involved with the client and business strategy for RBC as it pertains to the small business segment. Karen, welcome. Hi, Tony. Good to be here. So tell me a little bit about what you do and what does client and business strategy mean? I'm responsible for understanding small businesses and their owners for RBC and leading teams to deliver solutions and support and advice for small businesses as they start, grow and manage their business. So one of the phrases that I've been using since day one is that small business is the heart of our economy. It's in our collective interest to keep them beating strong. Can you back that up with the math? Is small business that important to what Canada is today and where it's going in the future? It absolutely is, Tony. Small businesses represent about 98% of the enterprises in Canada. So they are a massive engine for to the economy. They're a massive source of employment. In that intangible, they're a source of an incredible amount of innovation and ideas. They create diverse and vibrant communities. You walk down Main Street, you look to the left and the right, those are small businesses you're seeing, and that's what creates the heartbeat of Canadian communities. So let's talk about our poster child this week, Jim Estel. He started his entrepreneurial career at age 13. A little bit of Mark Twain, he's painting a fence, and his neighbor comes over and says, hey, do you want to paint my fence? And before you know it, he's handing out flyers, and he's a 13-year-old competing against local painters in the neighborhood, and he said, my success was answering the phone and convincing people that I would be there on time and would honor my quote. Is that kind of the DNA of small businesses, that it's not just something they fall into, but it, it just seemed to be wired to this sense of seeking opportunity and finding needs where others might not see them? It's this amazing combination of optimism, persistence, looking at the world through different lens than the rest of us. That combination and the ability to pick themselves up and just keep moving forward and thinking about how do I solve this problem is what we see time and time again in successful small businesses. I also think there's, there's other things that you see time that we see time and time again in successful business owners. You know, things like they are awesome problem solvers. They take calculated risks. They're decision makers because they are their business and they're they're leading, whether it's a business of one or they have a team, they're leading that business forward and making the decisions. And then you always see it and you know this from the people that you interview, the passion for their business, their product, their clients that you just see time and time again. Again, with small business owners. Jim Estel uh, goes on the board of Danby Appliances and he ends up buying the company. And he decides that the way he's going to compete is being a big fish in a small pond. He says, I'm going to own the bar fridge market. That's where I'm going to be my base. Is that a piece of advice you can give to entrepreneurs in terms of finding a lane and owning and innovating within it? Because what you have to your advantage is speed versus the bigger companies that might take a year to turn around the boat, you can move much faster. The clear things of know your market, know your client, know your product, apply 
focus on what you are good at and discipline yourself not to be distracted by the latest shiny thing. Go to where you think you, you feel like you're being pushed to go because your industry is going there or your competitors are going there. And certainly you need to understand that. But you also have to realize whether that's right for you and your business or whether it's it's right for them. And if everybody's going there, maybe there's an advantage in not going to that place and being somewhere where you can still be differentiated and, and compete on your terms and with the true connected to the DNA of your company. Karen, does the rest of your peers know how much you love your job? I love small businesses. I have, right from when I first started working with the Royal Bank and working in branches, I always found small businesses fascinating. They would come in and I wanted to find out about them. And that is that has lasted throughout my career. I think I actually have the best job at RBC. We're focusing on small business. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.